Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. If you follow the news, you've probably heard something about COVID-19 immunity laws for businesses and employers. When most people hear the word immunity, they naturally think in pretty broad terms. But how broad are the immunity laws that have been passed? You might be surprised. That's what I'm going to talk about in this episode. Back in March, when COVID was first declared an emergency, a lot of employment attorneys, myself included, predicted that a litigation explosion would happen in about six months. Well, I'm not sure it took that long, but the prediction was accurate. We are seeing a lot of claims being filed against employers in connection with actions taken related to COVID-19. What kind of claims? Well, just about every kind of employment claim imaginable. We're seeing workplace safety claims, discrimination of all kinds, wage and hour, leave-related claims, failure to accommodate, wrongful discharge, retaliation, you name it. And there has been a legislative response to the litigation explosion. First, I'll mention the federal response, the so-called Safe to Work Act. Believe it or not, that's an acronym. The actual name of the law is Safeguarding America's Frontline Employees to Offer Work Opportunities Required to Kickstart the Economy. Somewhere a legislative aide is patting himself or herself on the back for getting that one through. At any rate, the stated goals of the Safe to Work Act are twofold. First, to lessen the burdens on interstate commerce by discouraging insubstantial lawsuits related to COVID-19, and second, to preserve the ability of individuals and businesses that have suffered real injury to obtain complete relief. A couple of the proposed law's features are added procedural requirements for filing lawsuits and, of interest to employers, a limitation of liability under most federal employment laws for lawsuits arising from actions taken by employers to comply with government rules related to COVID-19. It is hard to say how this would have all played out, but for now, we probably need not concern ourselves. Anyone who follows the news has also seen that the most recent proposed COVID-19 relief bills, of which the Safe to Work Act is a part, are pretty much all dead at this point, and the soonest anything gets passed is likely early next year. So where does that leave immunity laws? Well, a growing list of states are passing immunity laws. Here's a non-comprehensive list of states that now have such laws on the books. Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Wisconsin, Wyoming, and some others like Arkansas and Alabama have immunity via executive orders. And there are other pending laws that may end up on the books in the near future. Now, my initial thought is that if you haven't already done so, it would be wise to check on the details of the specific laws in any states where you are doing business and find out how these laws may apply to your business. Having said that, let's consider for a moment Ohio's immunity law because it's pretty typical of state immunity laws. It was signed into law in mid-September of this year, and it has two components. First, it provides immunity for businesses from customers and employees bringing lawsuits alleging exposure, transmission, or contraction of COVID-19 in a place of business, and two, it has an exception if the employer's conduct amounted to reckless conduct or willful misconduct. 
And I think it's fair to say that the state immunity laws typically have some form of these two components. That is, number one, immunity for claims based on exposure, transmission, or contraction of COVID-19 in the workplace. And number two, an exception covering conduct that is intentional, willful, reckless, etc. So what does this all mean for employers? Well, first of all, you have to bear in mind that the claims actually covered by the immunity laws are fairly narrow. Unfortunately, a lot of people have a perception that the immunity is very broad. I've had a couple of business people suggest to me that my concerns about COVID-19 litigation were overblown because now they are immune from any litigation. Well, unfortunately for them, that is simply not the case. Most immunity laws only preclude claims based on contracting the disease at work. So employers are safe from claims that they didn't take the right steps to keep their employees from contracting COVID-19 at work unless they can be shown to have acted recklessly or willfully. So in most cases, employers who have followed government guidelines are covered. But this still leaves a lot of the types of claims we are seeing related to COVID-19 on the table. I'll give you a few examples. The biggest source of claims I'm seeing right now are claims arising from reductions in force. Many employers have found it necessary to have RIFs, and some employees inevitably claim that their selection to be within the reduction is based on some unlawful criteria. So the essence of these claims is that an employee was selected for termination as part of a reduction in force occasioned by the pandemic and its impact on the economy, and the reason for their individual selection is based on something like age or race or some other protected criteria. The selection criteria in this example is limited by laws like Title VII, the ADA, and state anti-discrimination laws, none of which are altered by the immunity laws. On a very basic level, the RIF scenario I just described doesn't really have anything to do with the precautions that the employer took to prevent employees from contracting COVID-19. As a result, it's not really affected by the immunity laws. Another example would be claims based on leave entitlements. Maybe an employee was denied leave under the FMLA or the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, and brings a lawsuit based on that. Again, the immunity laws do not supersede leave laws or entitlements, so those kind of lawsuits remain viable. The same is true for a whole range of additional claims, from wage and hour, disability, accommodation issues, as well as those things like workers' compensation. In general, none of these laws have been negated by the immunity laws, and while employers may have been forced to make some tough decisions because of COVID-19, the decisions themselves are not shielded by immunity laws. So here are the takeaways. First, immunity laws are good for employers, and taking claims off the table on any level is helpful. Anyone who's been involved in employment litigation on the employer side knows that the expense of defending a case, even a weak one, can be significant, and that's to say nothing of the time and distraction that goes into defending a case. So I don't want to downplay too much the importance of these laws being passed. They are a good thing for businesses and employers. But the second takeaway is that employers have to remain vigilant for risks created by COVID-19. Whether it's managing your workforce, dealing with leave requests and attendance issues, or having to plan a reduction in force, employers have to pay special attention to legal compliance and be sure to document everything. And, of course, 
don't forget to consult with your employment attorney. Shifting gears, did you ever wonder where the term fired came from in reference to termination of employment? I did some research on the origin of the term, and I found a crazy story on the internet. According to some sources, it all started with the National Cash Register Corporation, or NCR, which is still around, by the way. The story goes that in the 1910s, a particularly harsh manager at NCR wanted to terminate an employee, and what he did is he arranged for the employee's desk to be taken outside of the building and set on fire when the employee was returning to the building. And this was apparently to get the message across to the employee that he would no longer be working there. Hence the term fired. Pretty crazy. So crazy, in fact, that I don't buy it. Why would a company destroy its own property? And how would the story spread sufficiently in an era before radio, TV, and the internet to create a whole new term that was widely used in the culture? Well, I kept digging and finally found several references to the term dating back to the late 19th century. According to several dictionaries that document slang usage in that era, the term fired or fired out referred to forcibly removing someone and is a reference to discharging a weapon. It was later shortened from fired out to simply fired. I think that explanation makes a lot more sense But if anyone has better information, drop me a line. And I'll give you one quick takeaway here. I don't like the term fired. I think it sounds unprofessional and unnecessarily harsh. Discharge, separation, or termination of employment all sound better to juries. I hate to sound paranoid, but in my experience, it's not a bad idea to use the test of how something might look or sound to a jury as a guideline in the employment law area. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel. Thank you.